this world will not kill my son. Like I'm going to do everything in my power to ensure that he is safe, to ensure that I try to shift systems and communities so that he is safe and not just him, everybody like him. What's going on? Emily Abadi here. You are listening to episode 225 of Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I connect with everyone from your favorite athletes to top experts and industry CEOs about their highest highs, toughest moments, and everything in between. We all go through hurdles in life, and my goal through these discussions is to empower you to better navigate yours and move with intention so that you can stride toward your own big potential. And of course have some fun along the way. For episode 225, I am chatting with Allison Mariella Desir. She's the new author of Running Wall Black, as well as a disruptor and a mother. In today's episode, she talks about being in a really dark place before picking up running, using drugs and trying to numb the pain of her depression, and how Doing that, how choosing sport reminded her of what it was like to feel again. Really powerful imagery there. Allison talks about starting a running movement in Harlem called Harlem Run with the goal to make running more inclusive and welcoming to people of color. She also chats with me about what it felt like to be at the forefront of media attention for her efforts, despite knowing that so many people that looked like her felt othered in the space. Allison really opens up about so many topics here from what it feels like to be a black mother raising a black son in today's world, her feelings about the establishment of the running industry's diversity coalition. And ultimately, Allison just really challenges us all to level up, right? To level up, to create the community that we want to see to be a part of the conversation, to be a part of the change so that ideally we can all run free. Really, really happy to have had the opportunity to sit down with Allison. If you're like me, you've probably seen her name a whole bunch over the last few weeks in your podcast feeds. It was important for me that this episode, that this conversation brought things to light that I hadn't heard her talk about just yet. So. I hope that it is one that you enjoy. Again, her book, new book called Running Wall Black. I will link to it in the show notes. Make sure you are following along with Hurdle over on social at Hurdle Podcast. I am over at Emily Abadi. And I have two New York City Marathon events to share with you all. The signups aren't live just yet, but save the date for both Wednesday, November 2nd and Saturday, November 5th. More information to come soon, but you were asking me if there's going to be a moment, an opportunity for us to get together, especially on the home turf. And of course, there was never any doubt. So save those dates. Again, more info to come soon. I cannot wait to come back together. Last little bit of housekeeping. I'm hunting listener questions. So please send me one. Let me answer your question on an upcoming episode of the show. The link to leave me a voice message and ask one is in the show notes. With that, let's get to hurdling. Today, I am sitting down with Allison Mariella Desir. How are you doing today? I'm feeling so great and happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you. You know, I thought a lot about how I wanted to start this conversation, and I want to kind of invert it from my normal mm. conversation here on the show by asking you a question I typically reserve for the end. Right now, someone comes to your Instagram page. They see the new author of Running While Black. They see a mother, a disruptor. When you look in the mirror, what is it that you see looking back at you? That's a great question. I still see myself, honestly, as being like in my early 20s, 
trying to figure things out. And I have to pinch myself and remind myself I've come a long way. I have a voice that not only matters just inherently, but that people are listening to. Like, I'm not just this like person floating around in space trying to figure it out. Like, there's still a lot for me to figure out, but I'm making an impact. So I sort of have to be like, you're not a child anymore, Allison. <laughs> you are a grown ass woman. <laughs> a grown ass woman. But isn't that interesting? Because I can sympathize with that idea mm-hmm. that note that when I look in the mirror more often than not, I also see a version of my younger self. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, I don't know if that ever changes. I've heard older people say that they feel X age or that they don't, there's sort of the, always this incongruence between who they are supposed to be or who the world knows them to be and then who they are on the inside. So um, maybe that's just a, a beautiful kind of confusing part of life. A beautiful, confusing part of life. <laughs> I, I mentioned in noting what's going on your Instagram profile, new author. How does it feel? How are you actually feeling in this moment? I would say overwhelmed in a wonderful way. You know, there's been such positive feedback for my book. Um, There has been a little bit of trolling, but nothing that has gotten in the way of just the good vibes. But it's almost like, you know, I'm reading all this positive feedback and I almost have to like put my phone down and just like ground myself because all of that is excellent and that's what you want. But also I don't want to get so caught up in like the hype and um, the buzz and lose sight of this moment, what it means, um, the story that I'm here to tell, right? Like there's a lot of, you. yeah, it's so exciting to get likes and comments and retweets and all of that, but just trying to stay grounded. And in that, think of each step along the way as one thing, right? Like I'm having this book tour, which is one thing, but within that book tour, there are like 15 dates. And I want each of those events to be one that I'm fully present for. I want each conversation that I have to be one where I'm showing up for myself. I'm not just like saying the same thing that I've said on another podcast. I'm, I'm trying to be as intentional as possible because things like this, it may never happen again. And I want to fully enjoy this time that it's happening. It's a really good perspective. I have to double click on what you said about the trolls. How do you not linger Mm. in that negativity and focus on the positive? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I saw just, just one in response to runner's world's uh, runner's world had tweeted uh, a video that just came out and the person said, um, stop making everything about race. And of course I was like, first I was triggered and I was like, I could go in. And then I was like, but I don't even know who this person is. This comment was clearly meant to be provocative and to incite that kind of response. And I'm here for meaningful conversation. So I just have to like redirect myself as quickly as possible and not get sucked in. Like, what does a troll want? They want you to give all your energy to to this conversation that really is not changing or transforming anything. Right. So just don't get sucked in is what I tell myself. Sometimes I feel as though that idea of what was their goal to incite XYZ, I almost feel as though that may be giving them more credit than they even deserve, right? Like in the effort or, you know, whatever it is that they put out into the world, I don't often think that they realize that there's a person on the other side of whatever screen that they're looking at that's a real human being. Absolutely true. And in moments where I've been the worst version of myself, Mm. I have also done that, right? I have said something to a person or about a person not realizing like this is a real human and that's not an effective form of communication. I wouldn't say that I've trolled people, but I've certainly had, I've certainly said things and then, um, and even I've said things where I know the person, then I've texted or called the person and been like, whoa, like that was not what I wanted. I wasn't trying to contribute to a hate campaign against you because I know you as a human. So yeah, it's, I try not to be the, that worst version of myself, but that, those vibes out there are just not ones I want to get into. You answered what my follow-up question to that mm. note was going to be, which is, have you ever gone back and said I was wrong, which takes a really, it takes courage. I would say sometimes it takes yeah. being brave to admit your biggest mistakes. Absolutely. Yeah, I have. And there are probably times when I haven't, there might be somebody listening who's like, but you didn't apologize to me. (laughs) So I, you know, I'm sorry. Um, But yeah, I'm not perfect. And 
honestly, the way that social media is set up really is sometimes to incite bad feelings and things that things that go viral are thing, often things that are like highly sexual, highly controversial, very hateful, right? And so I also have to remember like not to feed into the machine and and as best as possible, shaming people is really not an effective means of creating change. I have been in the conversations where I've shamed people and what I realize is that just causes somebody to go more underground and feel like I am a bad person, therefore I will never try again. Um, I think it's different when you're talking about corporations and um, you know very powerful men or institutions where you must um, you must use all means necessary to get the message out. But yeah, you know it's it's meaningful conversation is always important when it can be had. If if I find myself in a place where I'm unsafe physically or psychologically, then that's a whole different story. And it's like, get out of here. Yeah, yeah. And if you had an opportunity now to kind of speak to that version of yourself, would you have a piece of advice perhaps to offer them? Yeah, I would say have more empathy in that moment. And yeah, like empathy is it's hard, <laughs> you know? but, but have more empathy and think long-term think about, you know, the reason why often I've made comments or I've done things or I, in the future, I'm sure I will um, operate in a way I don't love, but um, it's because I'm feeling pain and I want something to change. So mm. in that moment, honestly, you have to step back and say, well, is bringing this other person pain going to lead to change? Is there another approach um, that I can take? Right, right. And it's no wonder you're dealing with trolls, you're having to think about things from different perspectives, because the topics that you are speaking out on, it's not just cool and calm conversation all the time. So talk to the hurdlers a little bit about this work that you're doing as a disruptor. Talk to us a little bit about how you have become the author of Running Well Black. Yeah, that's a very good question. And that's, you know, that is absolutely the story that I'm telling in in this book, which is why I start with my youth and I start with um, sharing these little moments that ultimately add up and make me into the person who I am today. Moments where I found that I was the other or the only, the only Black person, the only Black woman in a room where people underestimated me where people confused me with other people, where people made assumptions about what I was capable of. And what I found was that my reaction to that was always wanting to say the thing that needs to be said, always um, you know, standing in my truth, knowing my history and what my people have done and seeking to create space for that. I credit a lot of that to my parents, particularly my father, who if you asked him a single question like, you know, I'd ask him for help as I'm studying for a test and he would just give me like the history of the world. <laughs> so I always had to be careful asking questions because you wouldn't get a two minute response. You would get, you know, hours response. But so I was always very deeply rooted in 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 history, but the the real history, not the history that they tell you in, in school, right? Because oftentimes this, what you learn in school is determined by those who are in power. So I always grew up like with this little disruptor sense of self. And when I found running, I was going through a period of depression. I found, I saw a friend of mine who was training for a marathon, a black guy who is not um, what you see in magazines. Um, and I know, I know hurdlers, I know you know about this because part of what you speak about, Emily, is body image and size and how even how you look is not what is presented in media. So I saw this person became um, attracted to his story and then I fell in love with running myself, but the industry and the community did not look like me and did not tout me as an, what a runner looked like. And I was like, okay, I love this thing. I love this place, but I need to shift it so that more people like me can see themselves. Hmm. I know you grew up in a, an in your- in a New Jersey suburb, right? Yes. Yep. It's interesting to me. I went to a, a book talk last night for a woman that I met in the journalism space. Her name is Danielle Prescott. She has a book that just came out called Token Black Girl. And at the talk, uh, she was talking 
with a moderator who was also black. And they were talking about how, despite, of course, them both being black skinned, that they had a very different black experience. Her growing up in Greenwich, Connecticut, and him growing up like in Bed-Stuy, where like, it was always a competition to be like, am I blacker than you, right? Mm. Versus Danielle being the quote unquote token black girl in so many of her spaces. So to hear about you entering mm. into the running community and feeling so othered, it's not mm. surprising, but it is unfortunate. I love that. And now I need to buy this book. Yes. But what I What's also was important about my story is that, yeah, there is no single way of being black, right? And when I was crafting my story, I wanted to to make it clear that just because I didn't grow up in Bed-Stuy or in an, in an inner city, didn't necessarily have violence or some of the kind of uh, tropes that people associate with blackness, I still was harmed by white supremacy. I still was harmed by racism, right? It shows up in all different ways and all of our stories are valid and important. So yeah, whether you're being, um, whether you're the token or whether your your story is about who's the most who's the blackest or the most whatever um they all are stories of people who have been harmed by racism and before we touch on you really feeling like the other when you started to show up to various groups in the New York area i do want to make sure that we give some breath to your journey with depression and how mm. that was something that drove you to running back in 2012. Can you talk mm -hmm. us through a little bit about how running aided those feelings for you? Absolutely. Running. So I, like I said, I saw this person who was training for a marathon and I was really just in such a dark place and felt like I felt so helpless that seeing him talk about the transformational experience, I was like willing to try anything. And a marathon certainly was never something that I thought I would do, but I, again, connected with his message. And for me, just the act of signing up for that marathon um, meant getting out of my house, meant, um, you know, not, I was regularly overdosing on, on Xanax and, and drinking a lot, other things just to sort of feel like, you know, to not exist. So just getting out of my house, going to the team and training office, signing up for this thing and leaving my credit card information because it was fundraising, right? So leaving my credit card information that I knew good and well I could not pay for <laughs> was, a, was a big deal for me. But what I think when, as I reflect on it, what gave me the most hope was this idea that you have this 16-week training plan that guarantees you will run a marathon at the end. And on the one hand, I was like, how could, how could anybody guarantee that outcome? But on the other hand, I was like, you know what? I'm going to put all of my faith into this, that if I follow all of the steps, I too will be able to accomplish it. And that is what completely transformed my world. Week by week, I was doing like a little bit more or a little bit different than I had done. And I was accomplishing these small goals that would lead to this bigger goal. And after completing my marathon, I took on that sort of, that kind of practice. I decided, okay, I'm going to apply this to, um, apply this method to finding a job, right? So I created an Excel document and week by week I was applying to jobs. I did that um, with everything in my life. And I also realized that while running was therapeutic for me, I needed to go to therapy and I needed to get on medication. So I credit all of that shift in my mental health to taking a chance on myself, taking a chance on this marathon. And I want to be clear that for me, it was all of these things working together, mental, like seeing a therapist, running, building community, medication, all of those things together are what allow me to maintain my mental health. And, you know, life continues to um, sometimes be difficult. When I, after giving birth to my son, I was very, very depressed. I'd postpartum depression and anxiety. And I, again, turned to each of these tools to help me through those moments. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't accountability in the form of putting your money where your mouth is like one of the best things ever? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's what well, it's so hard. It's, it's so hard to get started, but there is this momentum that builds and it is the accumulation of all of these seemingly small choices that add up to change. Yeah. And thank you for sharing about your journey. I think what's really important and what I try to highlight here on the show is that 
depression can look so different for so many mm. different people. I remember mm-hmm. once someone using the word, I just felt stuck. And for some reason, that word stuck really resonated with me. So mm. before we move on, are there any buzzwords? Are there any descriptors that you can use to really talk us through what it felt like for you before you found running? Yeah, I felt like I was a shell of myself. I felt like I was just existing, like not living. And part of why I was using um, substances, whether alcohol or, you know, prescription medication is because I just wanted to get to the next part of my life, whatever that meant, right? I just felt Mm -hmm. like, okay, this is this rough patch. And I just want to, I would say to close friends and family who didn't know how to respond, I would say, I just want to wake up in 10 years, right? So I felt like I was just this Mm -hmm. lifeless uh, shell and running created a spark, right? Like that's also this, what I, I, running was so powerful to me because it gave me an experience of being embodied again. I had been so numb and separate of myself that through running, I started to feel sore and I started to feel my chest and my breath and it was this connection like oh i am like my body is working with me i can tell my body to do things and i'll get this result so running was just this beautiful sense of of revisiting and reuniting with my body right feeling capable feeling at all again when you didn't want to feel in the slightest before that's really that's really special yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, I encourage everybody, like not everybody wants to be a runner. Not everybody will love the sport, but just the act of movement is incredibly powerful, no matter what you're going through and no, and no matter what that movement looks like to you. Yeah. And you mentioned the Excel spreadsheet, applying some of the lessons that you learned on the run toward finding your next job. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that you also got a master's degree in counseling psychology in 2016, followed by another master's in 2018 education. That was your third. So you've had a fair amount of education. What happens for you on the job front? Yeah. So I, um, listen, I could be a student forever. I also credit that to my parents who are always, you know, on Sundays, they were like reading, reading high level books and having conversation. And I just, um, I'm a really curious person and I love to learn. So, um, but despite all this education, I still couldn't find a job that I wanted to do. Um, I knew I started to, as I went through these master's programs, I started to realize that I did not want to be, have a nine to five job. I didn't want to feel sort of isolated or I didn't want to feel like I had to narrow all of my interests into one industry, right? Like Mm. I didn't want to be a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, a scientist, sort of things that I had heard growing up, I wanted to have a space where I could use my love of people and community, my curiosity, um, my skills from my master's in counseling, right, in in listening to people and, and understanding and, and, and help guiding them on a path. I, but I didn't know what that was. And in my book, I tell that story of like discovering how I could piece together something that would earn me money, but that also brought me a lot of joy. And part of my master's program, one of the classes we took was career counseling, um, where I finally realized that a career is not just, you know, you don't have to, it's a privilege, but you don't have to be limited by what you hear, right? Like what, what's doctor, lawyer, whatever the case may be, right? Like that you also have the capacity to craft a life based around what lights you up inside. And Mm -hmm. I feel very fortunate for my education um, and for this particular class and space to learn that. And as you are weaving your way down this path of trying to figure out what lights you up, you also, during this time in, I believe, 2013, found Harlem Mm -hmm. Run. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Now it all seems to be like, pieces of a puzzle that I was putting together, but I had no idea there was a puzzle (laughs) that I was working (laughs) on, right? I was just, I had gone through this incredible experience of that first marathon and it changing my life. And, but also recognizing that there weren't many black people who who I was running with or who were part of 
um, the team and training experience. So I wanted to create a space for us in Harlem. And I had no idea. I mean, I was hopeful that it would grow because I was showing up every Monday for six months. But when it grew to be 10 people, I was like, oh, this is it. And then it was 25 people. And I was like, oh my God, we've made it. Then we bought like hoodies. And I was like, oh, like we're super legit. It's like, as <laughs> <laughs> like, I just kept thinking like, this is the best or the most impactful. And I've been surprised and delighted in so many ways by what has come out of that just wanting to start something for my community. A hoodie really just makes everything so much more legit. <laughs> I mean, I was like, yo, people will see our name on something. People also just like, you know, now maybe we take it for granted because there are so many clubs and crews and there are so many places where people feel seen. But this idea of like, I mean, that's why we wear any kind of brand, right? Because this means something. So I just felt so just it felt so special that people saw that their values and sense of self was so deeply connected to this thing I started called Harlem Run that they wanted to wear it on their chest. Yeah. So as Harlem Run begins to gain traction, obviously you are at the forefront of that. Knowing that there is an issue within the running community with its lack of blackness, let's call it what it is, and also being identified more and more by conventional media as this superstar who is creating this movement in Harlem. How did that feel for you to kind of be singled out and be at the forefront while also knowing that there was so much work to be done? Mm -hmm. That's a really good question, right? I started to think about, I mean, this, this idea of a token Black girl, right? I started to piece together like certainly what I was doing was important for my community, but I started to recognize through the immediate attention that, oh, I'm being recognized because of the novelty around it, which, okay, I was happy to be sharing our, my story and changing the narrative and inspiring other people, but also I wanted to be part of making sure that there were more people like me, right? It wasn't mm -hmm. good enough that um, I was getting, or wasn't, that that didn't really give me the, the deep sense of joy that I was getting. I was singularly getting this attention. It's like, okay, but starting to think about, well, why is it that I am the only one in this space? And what are the barriers? And what is this recognizing that there is an industry here, right? That there are people who are making money off of running, the business of running, and they are the ones who are dictating what a runner looks like. They're the ones that are dictating what stories are seen as important, who's seen as valuable. And so I started to, that's when I really started to question and think about how could I make an, a difference in shifting all of this, right? Like, I'm not just, I don't just want to be the face of something. I want to be behind the scenes, um, shifting the conversation and the, the narrative. Was there any one conversation that you think back to toward the beginning of your work, which we'll get into, that made you realize the opportunity you had and perhaps at that moment, your importance? Mm. Yeah, there, there, there are many, but one that just immediately came to mind that I don't actually address in the book, but um, I had just completed Run for All Women, which was a run from Washington, uh, Harlem to Washington, D.C., we raised over $100,000. Wow. And at the time, I was sponsored by Under Armour. And Kevin Plank issued this statement around about Trump. I don't even remember the exact statement, but I immediately felt this sense of um, ugh, just like, that was it, <laughs> in my body, right? I am sponsored by this brand. I, of course, cannot represent or speak to all things that the brand does. But this is so misaligned with my values. And I posted something on Instagram and I later found out that I was the first Under Armour sponsored athlete to post like later Misty Copeland would post and um, Steph Curry would post, but that felt really dangerous um, for me to say this because I also, I am not Misty Copeland or Steph Curry. So I could easily be like, all right, your contract's over. So it felt really dangerous, but it also felt really significant and important to let my community know and, and stand up for what I believed in. And that actually led to me having a meeting with Kevin Plank and an opportunity to have conversation with him. 
And that was really powerful to me because I was like, oh, the industry is li is listening. These CEOs are listening. And that means that I can and will be continue to be intentional with what I'm saying, right? And that integrity is so important. So I think that was, again, there are many moments, but that was really significant for me in recognizing, oh, my audience is not just like this community or that community. It is the builders and owners of the industry. Yeah. Yeah. And as you mentioned, you were an Under Armour athlete at the time, but this also helps you to realize that you have an opportunity to create this kind of change and, and prompt these dialogues everywhere mm -hmm. else across the industry. After this moment with the Under Armour CEO, where do you go from there? Where else mm -hmm. do the important conversations start happening? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I started to, so, you know, I had just done Run for All Women and I started to think, I, I was developing more of a language of what I wanted to say, right? That's also what this book is. It's a journey of me discovering the the language and then having the confidence to be a disruptor. Um, but you know, if we fast forward to the pandemic and 2020, um, well, I had my son in, in July of 2019. And that whole experience of pregnancy and giving birth as a Black woman, I mean, it was incredible. I'm obsessed with my son. But it also made clear all of these disparities that are beyond my control, right? When having my son, I was deathly afraid that I was going to die, that I wasn't going to make it through childbirth because the statistics on Black maternal health are so poor in this country, right? In this country, and it's across socioeconomic lines. So you're talking about people like Serena Williams almost dying during childbirth. So it was like a whole new set of concerns. And and on top of that, I had always, of course, known um, my mortality as a Black woman, my, my husband as a Black man of moving through space as a, in a white supremacist country, but then having a son who... I might one day have to grieve for like Tamir Rice or Ahmaud Arbery. So when the pandemic hit and Ahmaud Arbery was murdered, I just felt this new sense of, I, in my book, I think I say I had, suddenly had less fucks to give in the most colloquial sense, but I had this new energy of like, this world will not kill my son. Like I'm going to do everything in my power to ensure that he is safe, to ensure that I try to shift systems and communities so that he is safe and not just him, everybody like him. So it was just this, yeah, I can't even describe it. If if people thought that I was bold before, um, having a person who I'm completely responsible for meant that I was going to do everything in my power to ensure he was protected. taking a break from today's episode to talk to you about one of the new sponsors on Hurdle, and that is Future. Future is a new workout experience that pairs you one-on-one -on -one with a fitness coach who will map out a custom workout plan and also keep you accountable every single day, all through the Future app. When you sign up for Future, you're paired with your own fitness coach who custom built a workout program that is delivered straight to your phone every single week. Personally, this is my second go around with the Future app. I spent about six months working with a trainer last winter and I loved it. And today, right today, right now, this is my day one. I'm starting back up. And what I love about Future is that right after you begin, you'll hop on a FaceTime call with your coach and blueprint out any goals, injuries, where you like to work out, the equipment that you have available to you. This way, your coach can then develop a comprehensive training plan, taking into account any and every factor you'd like to fit in. Also, this coach is so accessible to you. Your coach will check in with you via FaceTime and text, and they are really at the ready to answer any questions you might have, find you in your workouts, and check your form. I have loved my experience with the Future app. I only deviated away from it briefly during my marathon training. And now I'm ready to jump right in. And I would encourage you to do the same, especially because the price point is right. I ask you, are you ready to invest in your health and fitness? 
the answer is yes. I know it. So get started right now with the first month of future at just $19. Did I mention that this is customized training? That is a stellar deal. You can get it by heading to tryfuture.com slash hurdle. Again, that is T-R-Y-F-U-T-U-R-E.com slash hurdle to get your first month of training for just $19. Now note your first 30 days are risk-free and you can cancel at any time for a full refund. Also got to give some love to the folks at Element. Element, a science-backed electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. In terms of formulation and ingredients, Element keeps it simple, giving the perfect ratio of electrolytes while cutting out sugar, gluten, fillers, or other dodgy ingredients. I shook up, shook up (laughs) a bottle of grapefruit element yesterday, two bottles in fact, before I headed out on my longest ride, bike ride of the year. And oh my God, I wish that I was able to bring along so much more. It's not only delicious, but gives me everything I need to make sure that I can keep pushing even when, goodness, my legs did not want They have so many great flavors. Like I said, huge fan of the grapefruit. They also have raspberry, citrus, orange, chocolate, unflavored if that's your thing. A taste for every single person. The good news is that you can try all of the flavors with the special offer available for Hurdle listeners. If you head on over to drinkelement.com slash Hurdle, you can get a free Element sample pack with your purchase. Again, that is drinkelement.com, drinklmnt.com slash Hurdle to get a free sample pack with any purchase today. such a big statement, such a big undertaking, something that many who could share those sentiments might think, but would be scared to act on. Do you feel as though you've always had this boldness within you? Was this learned behavior or was this something that was instilled in you from a young age? Yeah, I think I think this has always been in me. I think what has changed is the platform has gotten bigger and the stakes have gotten higher, right? But I think this was always just who I was. It's something that my parents noticed from a very early early age. And as I've moved in my career and as I've moved, you know, gotten more um, attention and notoriety, like I said, the stakes have become higher and the things that I've said come with consequences. And so there is, there's a, a bunch of privilege with being able to say something and have the um, feel enough psychological safety or physical safety to say it. And I'm not saying that I always feel those things, but I have grown accustomed to um, being disruptive and taking that chance. Right. So um, yeah, w- th- when the stake, are your son's life and your own comfort and ability to to live in this world. Like I just was willing to do whatever it took. I appreciate in the the opening of the book, you have this chart which displays Mm. both U.S. running history and Black people's reality. And you're talking about Ahmaud Arbery's murder in Mm. 2020 here it says Ahmad Arbery is shot by a vigilante. Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and George Floyd are killed by police. And then shortly after that, October 2020, the Running Industry Diversity Coalition is founded. Mm-hmm. When that diversity mm-hmm. coalition was founded, how did it make you feel? Initially, I was fed up, (laughs) did not want anything to do with this coalition because it seemed to me that it was started by white people who wanted to do something but had absolutely no knowledge of the issues, right? And so it just felt, it felt really disingenuous to me that this group would come together to try to do something without the proper knowledge or skills. And it felt like it would be a burden for me to get involved and have to bring people along, right? Particularly during this time when um, because of lockdown, it's not that there were more murders 
or injustices happening, they just hit different, right? So initially I was I was really frustrated and I, I shared a lot of resentment with this group, which you can read through that, you know, we, we work through all these issues and we continue to work through these issues. But this is also, it is rare that Black, white, Asian, you know, any that any group of, that people of color are having conversations about race with white people, right? We often hear, you don't talk about race, you don't talk about politics, you don't talk about religion. And so what that means is that a lot of people do not have the practice or the endurance for it. A lot of white people don't have the practice or endurance for it. So having these conversations seemed like they were not going to go anywhere and seemed like they would be more of a burden for me than anything. But in sticking with it, I found that, you know, that these the white people in the RIDC, as they begun to, to do their own education and to grapple with racism and white supremacy, understand the language, understand the concepts, they could show up for this coalition in a way that truly could lead to meaningful change. So it was, it, it was one of the most difficult things that I've, that I've ever done, honestly. Um, and the, the fact that we've gotten brands, retailers, events, entrepreneurs on board and understanding how valuable the work of racial equity is and presenting a path and how to do that is really just unprecedented and incredible. Right. And that's only kind of the tipping point or a nod to a lot of the other work that you have done within the running industry. You you talked about the media attention and the conversations that you had at Under Armour, but shed some light on the other roles that you've taken on in promoting more diversity and inclusion within that space. Yeah, I mean, it's like, that's, that's all, all of my life's work, you know, I'm the, kind of, <laughs> I'm the kind of person who I'm, I'm, I'm a community builder. And I'm also like, I'm always, I'm always creating something. So uh, another recent part of this was um, a good friend of mine, Martha Garcia, and I, we had attended um, Empower Run Retreat, which is a wonderful retreat that takes place in March every year, hosted by two women who are retailers who recognize that women in that space were not given leadership opportunities, were not centered and celebrated. So they created this retreat. There were about 15 women of color who attended that. And I immediately started thinking about, there are more than 15 women of color who work in the running industry. And while this was retail focused, there were also people from brands, entrepreneurs, et cetera. And I was like, where are they, right? Um, and by the end of that two and a half day retreat, Martha and I were like, well, we will create a space that centers women, femme and non-binary folks that addresses this so-called like talent pipeline problem. What, what you often hear is, oh, black people don't apply or, oh, there's not enough, uh, talented women of color. And it's like, actually that's untrue. There are plenty of us. Maybe you don't know where to look. Maybe you're not using language that attracts us. Maybe your jobs are in places that are so racially intolerant and uncomfortable that we don't want to apply for that job. <laughs> uh, let me just put a plug for remote work there, right? <laughs> Nobody wants to go work in the middle of nowhere and be the only um, and face all of the racial hatred that comes with that. So we decided let's create this this space and within six months we put together this retreat um in september of this this year over 65 people attended we had the support of sponsors like uh brooks strava solomon title nine article one eyewear i think that's everyone who really believed in our vision and women the women femme non-binary folk who attended one of the my favorite comments is um wow i'm not crazy and I use crazy recognizing that there is um, ableism embedded to that phrase. I, I use it in the colloquial sense, but meaning, wow, all of these feelings that I've had, all of these situations I've been in where I have not received mentorship or people have misunderstood me or um, sort of not given me the chance, like I'm not the only one who's feeling that. Like, it's not me, it's the system. And that is super powerful that we could provide that space and I just look to continue to build on that. I look for this Women of Color Take the Lead retreat to be a space where you can find talent, where we can nurture talent, and where we can um, create space for hundreds, if not thousands, of more women, feminine, non-binary folk of color. Yeah. Uh, 
all of my questions are genuine, but this is also a genuine question. Can you speak a little bit to um, perhaps how language should be shifted or could be shifted to better mm -hmm. attract uh, candidates of color? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One thing that always triggers me is when I see in a job description, um, they like, must be professional or must dress professionally or must, oh. I, I, whatever the language is, right? But so for so long, including present day, the way that Black women in particular show up with our hair has been called unprofessional. Mm -hmm. And it's not just Black women. I mean, you could just Google it. There are stories of one that comes to mind of this young Black boy who was in a wrestling competition, had locks. They literally made him cut off his locks in order to participate, right? The Crown Act recently passed um, saying that you could not, you may not face uh, work discrimination based on your hair, right? So this idea of professional is really rooted, what comes up for me is this white supremacist idea of what a professional looks like. I think I already mentioned this idea of remote work, right? Thinking critically about where are you inviting people to come to, right? And not just like your, your, the physical location might be wonderful and you might treat people with respect within that office. But if somebody is, and I, I'm not going to say any state because I don't want to... <laughs> incriminate anybody but if you are asking black and brown people to move to places that have a very small non-white population and have a history of police violence think about the hostility that you're bringing people into right yeah and and one last example that i would give is not including salary right there's now a push um in some states i think in new york it's um like you must have salary in it and what happens when you don't have salary requirements or salary uh, baselines is that people from historically excluded, historically marginalized communities then have to advocate for themselves based on a history of being underpaid, right? Yeah. To bring from your book, Black women in the U.S. paid 36% less than white men and 20% less than white women. That amounts to $1 for white men, 73 cents for white women, and 58 cents for black women. There you have it, right? So your refusal to share what the salary means then puts it on me to request my salary. And you might ask for my salary history. So if I suddenly am asking for what I'm actually due, which let's say I'm making $150,000 a year, and I say $300,000 a year because that would put me at the equivalent of a white man, it doesn't seem reasonable, right? So these are the ways that if you are truly invested in diverse talent, in women, in women of color, if non-binary non folks, then do us the effort, like give us the gift of not having to fight for every single moment, not having to advocate so hard for ourselves so that we can just show up. Yeah, just show up. You know, this conversation, the idea of meeting candidates with where they're at, for some reason, it's it's triggering me to remember a conversation I had with Minaj Diaz. He's the co-founder of a meditation and movement platform called Open. And he was one of the first people that ever said to me that when he teaches, he always adds the line, if you are comfortable, close your eyes. And that brings mm. about such an important sentiment that people are coming to different experiences with their own series of experiences, with their own exactly. history. So to understand that and not expect people to feel a level of comfort because you feel a level of comfort is so, so integral in being able to move forward and being able to treat people equally. Exactly. That is, I mean, that's exactly it, right? In order for people to actually be treated equally, they need to be treated differently, right? Because people don't come to this space with the same arsenal, right? So for example, and there's so many different um, images that, that try to convey this message, the difference between equity and equality. Equality is you give everybody to the same thing. So you might recall this image, this cartoon, where there are these three people at a baseball game and they're all standing on the ground. One is really, really short, so he's looking at this fence. One is really tall, so he's looking over the fence. And one is in the middle and he can like barely see over the face the fence. That's that's equality. They're all there. Equity is completely removing the fence, <laughs> right? Getting rid of the obstacles so that everybody has an equal view of this fence un uninterrupted, right? And so that's the idea. Um, and for people who have privilege, the idea of equity feels like something's being taken away. Something mm. that was once just for you 
now all these other people have it. It feels like you have less. No, in fact, now we all just have access the way that you once had. But yeah, I mean, that's why you, that you often face friction in these conversations, what, why you hear white nationalists chanting things like X group will not replace me. This feeling of being replaced is really a feeling of equity happening. And, um, and when, I, when I'm in a place where I can have empath- empathy for folks like that, it's like, you still matter, but guess what? We matter too. We're not saying that you don't matter. We're just putting this particular emphasis on us mattering because we have historically not mattered. Right. So let's bring this conversation back to the running community and your experience within the running community, because I would then dare to say that there was, per your account at the time, a massive lack of equity within the running space, and especially here in New York City where you were. Absolutely. I mean, I share some examples at the, of when I was starting Harlem Run of visiting different groups to get a sense of what they felt like, to see if there were opportunities collaborate, to collaborate, and just feeling, seeing that these spaces were not spaces for me, right? There's there's a group where, you know, I showed up and there were hundreds of, of white bodies at 6.30 in the morning screaming and cursing and carrying on and thinking about what would that look like if it was Black people doing the same thing in front of the mayor's house, no less, right? I was looking, um, I experienced going to groups that were led by Black and brown men, but that you know, patriarchy and this idea of what, how Black women should show up meant that I wasn't thought of as a, as a partner. I was thought of as secondary or unimportant, right? Um, I looked at the ways that certain groups were receiving sponsorship and attention because they fit a certain idea of what a runner looks like, of what, how fast a runner is, or, you know, whatever that narrative was. Um, and I would say that, you know, there's still a lot of problematic pieces within the New York city running community, but things have and are changing. Um, but that change only comes when, again, people with privilege recognize that other people are not being served and that it's your role as somebody with privilege to try to dismantle those systems, right? We folks who don't have folks who are oppressed in some ways, of course, we can yell and scream and shout, but that is why allies are important, right? Because allies already have more power. And so being brought into that, um, being supported is is really essential. Give me an example or two of promising change. Mm. I have the opportunity to work with several brands. Um, for example, um, I... With Strava, most recently, I went to this conference, Reuters Momentum, which is a place that I never thought that I would be. And so the CEO, Michael Horvath, was given an opportunity to to talk about Strava. And the choice for that conversation was about building diverse communities and how Strava is working to expand their app to more people, an app that began as an app for Michael and his friends who were white male cyclists and recognizing that in order for Strava to meet their goals of being, you know, the record of the world's movement, that that wasn't enough, right? So that to me is really powerful because this is uh, Michael and Strava recognizing that on this significant stage, Reuters Momentum, what they want to do is they want to address racial equity and diversity. So that was that was powerful for me. I also yeah. want to give a, give a shout out to TRE, the running event, which is an event that I remember looking at it like seven years ago. And looking at the imagery and the programming and just being like, this is a place for old white men to get together. <laughs> right? And now being um, myself and Kiara Smalls, who's the um, executive director of RIDC and all the other um, RIDC board members, really being integrated into what the programming is and having conversations. Um, this is the second year, but having conversations that aren't just about, um, that aren't like, Racism 101, but that are talking about how do you build a racial equity framework into all of the work that you're doing, which means that you have, yes, um, upper, uh, conversations and education around racial equity, but you're also featuring people of color who are designers, who are um, 
you know, content creators, like we are, black and brown people are more than just talking about this experience. We are also experts in many fields throughout the industry and, and deserve space. This makes me think about the other stat that you had cited at the the top half of your book, noting that out of the 500 plus women that ran mm. the U.S. Olympic marathon trials in 2020, four of them were black and one was African-American. And the craziest thing for me now, looking back on that experience as a white woman being there that day is... I don't recall that for a second, right? Like I don't recall wow. looking at the field and thinking to myself, like, where are all the women of color here? Like what's going on? Mm -hmm. Like, no, but now in retrospect, like reading that and being aware to that, it is clearly evident that we need to do a better job of mm -hmm. providing and creating access and also opportunity instead of, um, you know, to an extent of, of gatekeeping, um, mm -hmm. that opportunity, mm -hmm. how can we make it more inclusive and provide it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I remember seeing that. And of course I was rooting for Alephine and then I saw, oh. um, the woman whose name escapes me, but she, the woman who identifies as African-American and she had her hair in a fro and I was like throwing up the fist and rooting for her. She's now, I think she's a Patagonia trail athlete. Right. But, but to your point, awareness is key because we are all trained to, or I shouldn't say we are all trained, for many white people, um, being the default all of the time, having everything from history to media to um, businesses center your experience means that you can walk into pretty much anywhere and be represented and feel seen and, you know, safe. Um, and so you don't have an awareness that you, that there might not be people of color in that space. So I think Awareness is the first piece because without that awareness, you cannot, you can't implement change, right? Like you can't change what you can't see. That's also a reason why RIDC is focusing on two key research projects. One that's in the running um, industry at large about um, employment. So looking at like, we know that the industry is very white, but we want to get all of those statistics around employment in, in different sectors of the industry. And then one that's more focused on trail. Because once we have those numbers, once we can say, well, the industry really is 95% white uh, in terms of like leadership and, and, um, and ownership, then we can chip away at it. So mm -hmm. I, I hope that my book is one that it does two things. It, it creates a level of awareness um, and then it creates an empowerment to do something about it. Now that yeah. you've seen these statistics, what can you do? And for a coach that might, uh, let's say you're a cross country coach, that might be um, being more intentional with students, right? So certainly students will just show up, but going, having conversation with students who are talented and perhaps would like to be in cross country, having conversations with them and their families about what is stopping them from showing up, right? And inviting them into the space. If you are in the C-suite or a CEO, start revising your job descriptions, uh, start um, looking for the ways in which you can create mentorship for talent that might be at entry level or other positions so that they can begin to occupy these, these roles, right? Each of us in our own space can make a difference. And that's really what, what I hope this book um, shows people. Yeah. And very different experiences, let's call it size, inclusion, and diversity mm. versus, you know, color and diversity. But mm. you said it on that you hit the nail on the head with the concept of if you don't see her, you can't be her for so long. Personally, I was frightened to go to any sort of run club or speed situation because I felt othered, right? Like I felt like I was too big to be there. I didn't belong there. No one there looked like me. And yes, again, I acknowledge extremely different conversation, but it is important to, to identify what those barriers might be and how can we include people? Because at the end of the day, like that should be, and I will should on that, like that should be the goal of clubs and culture that are for fun, that are for, you know, we're just a, a bunch of adults running, right? Because we enjoy <laughs> exactly. running. <laughs> exactly. No, and you're, you're so right. Because the thing is, 
you know, when somebody, what often happens is somebody shares an experience that's different than yours and you want to shut it down, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to say like, Emily, please, like, what are you talking about? Of course you can show up. But what I invite people to do is when you hear a perspective that's different than than yours, like hold the tension of that experience being different from yours and also being valid, right? Like in Emily saying that, Emily's not saying like, and I hate all of you. <laughs> I was saying, I don't feel seen and I want to be part of this. Can you create an opening for me? Right. So it's like, it's an invitation. Take it as an invitation rather than um, an attempt to erase your worldview or your truth. Yeah, for sure. Now, I think this is a good point in our conversation to note that the title of your book was almost something else. Talk to us about that. Yeah. Initially, the title of my book was The Unbearable Whiteness of Running. And, you know, that version of the book was more of a manifesto, more of something that I would say was uh, kind of like an anti-racism book that would go through and point out more instructionally what, what I saw as problematic in the industry. And in talks with my editor and publisher, there was this sentiment that you know, I didn't want to write a book that centered whiteness. I wanted to write a book that actually centered myself and my experience. And that made all of the difference. Trish Daly is an incredible editor. And it allowed me to really be vulnerable for people to get to know me through the book and therefore be a more powerful book, right? Because you um, you, you go on this journey with me and you understand that each of us is always trying to do better, myself included, right? I, I get things wrong all of the time. All of us do. That's normal and natural. But we still have to work together collectively to um, make changes that we all really care about. Because the good news is that I do believe that the running industry is well positioned to make change. We like doing really difficult, uncomfortable things for a long time. We can't stop talking about running and sharing it with people. We want everybody to, to move and our industry depends on it, right? As demographics shift, um, we need to invite new people into this space. So I think we are very primed to make a change. And this book, I hope, is um, going to be uh, an additional catalyst for that. What excites you right now? I am so excited that I have the opportunity to go on the road and meet all of these communities because I have friends who had books come out in the past few years and they couldn't do that. And there is just nothing more special than showing up and somebody telling you their story and somebody thanking you for sharing for sharing something that resonates with them or somebody thanking you for pushing them to see the world in a new way. I just ultimately I love people and I love community. So the opportunity to have this tool, my book, Running While Black, that leads to these meaningful conversations is like gold. Like anybody who who wants to write a book, man, it is really difficult and you will like feel like you're losing your mind a lot. But this opportunity to connect with people on a deeper level is worth it. I think that we can all agree that we are different people now in 2022 than we were before the pandemic. So much has happened. It feels like there's been eight years within like a three-year period. With that said, when you look back on the last two years outside of your book and this moment, what would you say has been one of your proudest accomplishments as a disruptor, as someone who is standing up for more diversity, inclusion, and equality in the space? You know, what I'm most proud of is that I am able to move seamlessly between being in front of the scenes and behind the scenes, and in that role behind the scenes, championing other people. I, Over the past two years, I've had the opportunity to, to say other people's names in rooms, to elevate and uplift people's work. And that is really cool, right? I, I'm not ready to like disappear from, from the space the spotlight or from in front of the scenes, like there's still a lot of work that I want to do, but I have had just such a cool opportunity to learn about what other people are doing and to give them the support, whether it's time, whether it's financial, whether it's just there to listen. I have been able to do that so much and I, I want to continue to do that. 
for anyone else who has a mission, a message, a passion that is close and dear to their heart and maybe hasn't had the success that you have had in championing your cause, in showing up and getting in front and getting eyes, is there anything that you would offer to that person on their journey toward making a difference? I would actually say be more collaborative or think about whether you're being collaborative. Sometimes when we have a vision, um, you know, we're often taught like you have to relentlessly pursue this single vision. Um, But I found that I'm most successful and also um, joyful when I'm collaborating with other people. So as you're sharing what it is that you're excited about, ask, and is there a way that I can support what you're doing? Is there a need that you have that I can fulfill, right? And that sort of also that allows people to not feel a sense of competition. It's like, oh, yeah, we can work together on this. So always look for ways that as you're building up your your gift, that you're looking to collaborate with other people and looking to also support other people's gifts. And I, I just think you go, you get further with that um, strategy. It brings me back to that idea that if you want love, you have to give love. Like if you want to make a difference, then you have to embrace all of that, all that comes with it. Exactly. It's an ecosystem. You have to find yourself in it and you have to support it and breathe life into it and know that others will do the same for you. Definitely. Definitely. All right. Right now, my friend, you have an opportunity to offer yourself a piece of advice. Let's go back to right when you started running in that moment where you felt so beside yourself looking to alternative substances to help you get through your days. You have an opportunity to offer that, Allison, a piece of advice, knowing what you know now. What do you tell her? I would say be patient that the things that you want are going to take longer than you'd like, but they're coming. Often when I think of my own, this only is for me, I can only speak of my own journey. But when I think about, you know, moments when I wished I wasn't here, when I was overdosing on pills, it was a lack of patience or belief that things would get better, right? I wanted things to feel better in that moment. So I would tell Allison, just be patient, right? It's going to take time, but you will not always feel this way. The the situation will one day be so incredible and lovely and overwhelming that um, you won't even know what to do with yourself. (laughs) You won't even know what to do. You said it. Collaboration is important. Support is important. How can the hurdlers support you? How can they follow along with you? Give us all your details. First and foremost, please buy my book pre-order if you're able book purchases the the book industry is like just it's a it's a new thing for me to find out but but book orders are essential to to you know like pre-orders in particular let the industry know that this book is going to be meaningful but yeah if you if you if you're even curious about this book buy it and support me um you can follow me on instagram at allison m as in mary desire um my website is allisonmdesire.com and um yeah That's what I would say. The other piece that will help not just me, but so many people is to develop this awareness and curiosity, right? That's, uh, I never get mad at people who ask me things out of curiosity. I get mad at people who ask me things because they intentionally want to harm me, but stay curious and buy my book. Stay curious, buy the book and stay kind while you're at it. I'm over at Emily Abadi at Hurdle Podcast, another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time.